The Right Optics by Silmo. Presented by Jason Kirk. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Right Optics by Silmo. I'm Jason Kirk, founder and managing director of Kirk & Kirk, with over 30 years of experience in the eyewear and optics industry and a family history of making frames going back to 1919. You can hear me chatting to leading voices from the optics and commercial worlds as they share the secrets behind their success. My guest in this episode is not actually from the optics world, but my word, does he understand retail and the consumer world. Peter Cross was the customer experience director at John Lewis before leaving in 2021 to start a new working life as a speaker, consultant and writer. He's a consumer expert and retail consultant, and his experience could prove invaluable to anyone listening to this podcast. Peter now joins me from London. Peter, how are you? I'm good. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Jason. So I am extremely jealous of your CV. I think I very much undercooked it in that introduction. Um, you've done some amazing things dating back to L'Oreal, to Dunhill. Um, tell us a little bit about your career path. Um, no, yeah, you gave it a pretty good, a pretty good warm up. Thanks for that. Uh, it's, um, yeah, it's, I've had a, a fairly unique journey um, in that I've moved backwards and forwards between being a, a consultant. Uh, and being in-house um and i've jumped you know back and back and forth a few times which is fairly rare but it's given me a fairly unique perspective on on customers and the world of work um having served them when you're you know when you're in-house in a company like john lewis or l'oreal or when you're advising brands uh, as as an independent and you also worked with mary portas for a while didn't you at yellow door we did we did. She was practically my next door neighbour. Actually, that is, the, is is the truth of the story. Um, but we lived near each other, and we were mates first, uh, and then had a shared vision and a shared dream for for retail and for communities. We were both were both passionate about the the role independent retail plays in building a collective sense of of, of social identity and community. Um, and from that built a, a very successful consultancy uh, and a whole lot of other crazy stuff on the back of it. Like what? Oh, you can't, I can't let that go without asking. <laughs> what? Like, um, I mean, we, you know, we, we obviously had a whole, a whole series of, of, of tele programs uh, and writing uh, and speaking in public about the stuff we were passionate about. Um, and we were fearless in our, in our ambition. Uh, there was just nothing that we wouldn't take on, uh, and God knows where that came from. <laughs> but it was uh, it was a shared belief in ourselves and a shared belief, I think, in the in in the power of of our ideas to change to change the world for the better. If that doesn't sound too too grand and too silly, Jason, I think it sounds a little modest, Peter. If you ask me, I mean, I think you've got to, you've got to have a bit of self belief um, to, to to sort of progress in life because as as soon as that little, uh, that little sort of, um, that little demon called self-doubt starts scratching away at you. Um, not only do you not achieve as much, but your life's not as happy. Um, and and self-doubt can come from all kinds of places, like a you know a bad boss, a bad job, you know, a bit of bad luck. Um, but but ultimately, uh, you know, a bit of self-belief goes goes a long way towards a, a happier, more fulfilling life. I think. Interesting, and it's it's not only your self confidence and self belief, but the the belief and trust that you uh, that you inspire in your customers as well. Yeah, I mean the end game is obviously your customers, but the the start point is the people you work with, um, without a shadow of a doubt. Because making 
the people that work for you and work with you feel like they can take on the world and be, you know, a bit of a silly old phrase, but be, be their best selves and as good as they can be is, is always the start point to, to, to greatness. Um, and you learn that, you learn that with time. You know, I think when you start a career, you're, you're not necessarily as aware of the importance of mobilizing and motivating the people that work with you and for you. But by God, by, by my age, uh, you better have learned it because without it, you're, you're kind of nothing. Absolutely. And what, have you had any involvement in optics in your, in your varied career, looking at different companies, working with different people? I've, I've got, Jason, a very superficial knowledge of everything <laughs> because I seem to have skimmed the surface of pretty well every industry there is. Uh, and I'm a bit of a blagger. So I can make myself sound re relatively sensible about a lot of things. Uh, but the optical industry is one. And actually, it's probably been more than, than superficial, actually. I, um, I had uh, a little bit of work with uh, Luxottica, uh, the group, in my early days and did some speaking for them, actually, and really enjoyed um, uh, meeting them uh, and getting to know their business. Uh, there was a collaboration um, with uh, David Clulu and John Lewis, which was uh, which was very successful in our shops, um, and I've spoken recently at some at some some optical events, uh, largely about the the role of opticians on the high street, actually. And one of them was with you, indeed. It uh, was. In case you've forgotten, how could I forget? <laughs> so, Peter, when you look at optics, when you look at optics as an industry, you've had some involvement with brands, large brands. You've had some involvement with retail. And you've had some involvement in trade shows. So, what do you see when you look at optics? Um, I mean, I've seen a, inevitably a very passionate industry um, with a lot of very clever people. I mean, it's an industry of of many parts. There's enormous passion in the optical industry that's kind of fizzing whenever I've been to optical events, and that's that's exciting. Nearly as much as the hairdressing industry, where I've spent uh, quite a bit of time, and, and a lot of these sort of professions are are, are related through the passion uh, of the people and, and the, the technical expertise they have. And there are there are people who are passionate about the technology, um, and the craft of being an optician. I've met people who are passionate about customers, uh, and I've met people like yourself, Jason, who have an understanding of the role of of fashion and style in in building a lucrative business. Um, so it's it's an industry of, of 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 you know of many types, from my experience. So how do you build community in an industry that's so varied? How do you get people to come together and, and work together? God, that's a good question. Um, I mean, it's a question for, for, for all business and for all time. Um, but how do you get people to work together? It's largely through, through a shared vision of a successful future. Uh, I mean, I talk a lot about, about high streets. High streets have been rubbish at collaborating. Independent retail. Uh, often work independently, even though when customers visit high streets that work, they don't see them as independent shops. They see them as 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 their place and their town, and they expect them to 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 work together in the interests of of, of their um, of their community. But businesses don't really, really rarely, and and a shared vision of of a successful, lucrative, um, you know, fulfilling industry in the future is is often is often the way, although where that comes from, of course, is um, is not always clear. 
No, it's not clear at all. And um, for us, at the moment, we've got a, a, a pop-up store. It's our first foray into retail. We're running a pop-up store in London. And it's very interesting to see the neighbours that come and gravitate and want to share with you immediately and others who just keep their distance and they're kind of, they're just too cool and they're too worried about their brand image. And for me, there was a massive opportunity during the pandemic when independent retailers should have got, to, not just retailers, independent um, uh, different sectors of the independent industry should have got together and shown some strength, taken the opportunity to work together as a unit, as a community. And we really missed that opportunity. And I wonder when the next time is that that's going to be possible. I agree. No, I agree. The, um, the, I mean, if we're trying to be positive about it, the, the, the evidence that gives us a sense that the high street could be ready for reinvention, you know, the, 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 the cost of fuel, uh, this newfound love for our communities that's come from the pandemic, um, a, a, a real belief and desire for craft and expertise, uh, and I'll pay a bit more for it, even though there's this dreadful economic crisis looming over us. Um, uh, and you know that there are, there are reasons to be cheerful, um, but they will not do it independently. Um, it, it, it's you know it's whether it's whether it's through being too cool or whether it's just being frightened, frightened that someone might nick your ideas or fright you know frightened that somebody might might nick your customers. Um, ultimately, collaboration between businesses can only bring mutual benefits. Um, it's funny actually that the luxury industry um, is better at it, which is really strange because you're chasing it. You're chasing a higher net worth customer. But in the luxury industry, there is a real understanding of, of collaboration. The amount of collaborations you get in luxury between the strangest of brands. Um, and they move as a pack, the luxury brands. You know, they all move to one, one moves, they all move. So it's odd that in, in, in the most prestigious and, you know, and, and sort of, you know, highly esteemed sector of, 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 of retail and commerce, is is where the most collaboration happens. I think that's really that's really interesting and very true. But we're talking we're talking to the whole optical industry, and it? it's not just about the the luxury sector of independent. Here, we're looking at everybody from the people that make the cloths to the people that make the lenses, people who make chains, optical retailers, optical groups, independents. There's a whole gamut of people involved in this industry, and it's traditionally been a really conservative industry and resistant to change, and it had changed thrust upon it in the during the pandemic like so many industries did one of the things that happened was that opticians were allowed to stay open as essential retail and they were forced to change the way that they interacted with their customers and this was fascinating because instead of trying to whip people through quickly um, and and get them to buy a frame buy a lens and leave they were forced to spend about an hour with one person at a time and this felt very alien to the optical community. But, but the result was they had their shopping baskets increasing in general by about 20%. And there was a big change and people were very, very happy about this. And then the pandemic finished. Well, it hasn't finished, but you, you know what I mean. Shops were open again um, and the, the uh, trading atmosphere changed. And I wonder how many of these retail opticians are actually thinking about how they can best go back to how they were before the pandemic or whether there's great learning that they can take and adapt and evolve from the way that their business has improved. No, I mean it's it, it's it's not the first time I, you know I'm I'm hearing stories like that because often if you are a technical expert, you know, um, money and customers and 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 
sales are, are dirty words. And not mind just mention the hairdressing industry. It's, it's the same, actually, trying to get a hairdresser to move from the craft of cutting hair to selling a shampoo on the back of it, when actually the, the customer's goodwill towards you and belief in your expertise in a world where there's far less expertise uh, is huge. Um, I mean, in retail, Jason, the the new dynamic is that the customer now knows, you know, uh, now knows more than they did, um, and oddly, some two thirds of sixty five percent of the um, of the sale is completed by the customer before they come into the shop. So they know a hell of a lot more. But then the the, the expectation of that final thirty five percent that I'm going to get. Uh, is 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 really really significant. In the case of the optician, I don't know anything. You know, I'm turning up at the optician without having done my you know my Google search. I might know a little bit, but really, I want the full hundred percent. And I guess in your sector, uh, like a, a few others, it's a case of really owning the, owning that knowledge and expertise, and then really leveraging it to maximum customer and commercial advantage but isn't this a great opportunity for opticians for or for optical retailers generally um the consumer is out there they have so much opportunity they're sitting at home going online it used to be a completely magical world where you walked into the optician and you relied on them to give you information tell you what lens to get tell you what frame to get and you walk out and you've dropped a few hundred pounds and you feel comfortable in what you've been told But now the consumer, as you've said, for so many other purchases, and I think for optics too, is educating themselves online. And they will make a decision about which store they go into without any optician. They don't shop around for opticians. They go online and they look at what's available, what they can learn, what they understand, and make that decision then. So how can the optician best communicate with the consumer well and this is really important as well i think best communicate with their customers and also the people that are not their customers yet i mean these are all these are really big questions i think the you know the, the one start point is is recognizing that in the future um our lives are going to be very different and the future ain't that far away um you know we'll know more we'll share more um We'll automate more. We'll monitor more. We'll, we'll customize more, uh, and anything that gets in the way of our flexible, seamless, always-on connected lives um, will be rejected. So the first thing is recognizing that the, the customer of the future will be very different from the customer. So if something stay the same, uh, like good old-fashioned customer service. You know, will still work, but ultimately you have to find your way into your life into 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 their lives and the only thing that's the, the only thing that's getting in the way of the role that you will play in their lives is yourselves and the boundaries that you set um because the, the, you know it's all kind of up for grabs really i as a, as, an, as a bit of an example for that jason if you look at spanish banks for example british in, generally british banks are fairly limited in what they sell it's financial products but Spanish banks have realized that the trust that they have is, is, is way beyond financial products. They play such a fundamental role. So they're selling, I mean, they're selling pretty well everything to their customers because they've built this phenomenal trust, you know, from, from insurance products to security products to, to all kinds of stuff, which really surprised me. You know, I've got I spent a bit of time in Spain. And oddly enough, in your industry, it's not dissimilar. The trust that you have uh, from your customers is so significant 
it means that the, 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 the boundaries and the, and, the, and the barriers are only the ones that you set in terms of the services that, that you can sell to them in the future. Um, and if you don't see the customer that way, there'll be others who'll swoop in and think, well, we can, we can do optical services too. Uh, and look at the way that Amazon has managed to, to, to grow its business. Uh, and you can pretty well put Amazon on anything today. And people will go, yep, you know what? That's fine. <laughs> I'll buy that. Uh, so you've got to just open your mind to, to, to a new customer mindset that's coming our way, you know, like a train. Yes, absolutely. I can't, I can't uh, argue with that at all. And when you look at all the new, young, exciting, thrusting retailers that are coming through, they're doing it in a different way. They're doing it in a different way to what we're used to. So you look at um, great stores like Ace and Tate and Bailey and Nelson. Uh, they, they have a different approach and you feel like you're going into a young, trendy store. And then you've got other, you know, you've got another end of the spectrum. You've got spec savers that are offering something which is fairly value-based. It's a value proposition. And then you've got these high-end independent opticians and they're offering a product which is generally much more expensive. It's probably names that you've never heard of. But I wonder whether the optician is skilled enough in communicating what the consumer is actually paying for or what they should be considering when they make a decision, whether they go to Specsavers or Taylor Westin Hove. Probably not. I mean, well, probably not in all cases. Um, and the you know, two words that are just interesting to have in your mind is, is what is transactional retail? And what is interactional retail? So transactional retail is fundamentally stuff that I just don't care about uh, or, or I don't care enough about or, 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 or I just, you know, I don't want it to, to, to block my life. So it's largely done online. It's, 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 it's very much a sort of, you know, you give me this and, and, I, and I don't want to talk to anybody, but it's, but it's, the, stuff of, it's the stuff that kind of, you know, that, that, is, that is a very significant part of our, of our human shopping basket. Um, whereas interactional retail, which is the business that you should be in, is far more about relationships, partnerships, uh, trust, uh, and, and building something that's, that's, that's far deeper. Uh, there are probably optical businesses out there that are transactional and just basically see people like a, you know, a conveyor belt. Um, whereas the lens of, of an interactional business is always on the future. And always on building meaningful conversation, relationship, partnership, which means that ultimately you can you can sell them far more than a pair of glasses uh, as as the relationship builds. And what does that say about online business for optics? It says it has a place. It says it totally has a place because we are we are living in a digital world. Uh, offline businesses have to be digital first because the first point of contact for any customer is, you know, I'll just grab my phone and find out where this shop is and what the Google reviews were. And, you know, uh, so you, you, you have no choice. You have to be a digital first business wherever you are located, but then you leverage the human time that you have uh, fueled by technology because inevitably the technology will come once they've gone um, to build a, you know, to build a, I guess, a deeper partnership. Industry voices, insight, and inspiration. The right optics by Silmo. So, how can opticians learn about their customers? How can they find out more? Where do they? How do they identify who's coming in and who should be coming into their store? Just ask them. 
<laughs> I mean, is there's no, I mean, it's a bit of a silly, obvious answer. Um, but it's, but to reassure you, it, it's a question that even the biggest businesses actually still struggle with. Um, because if you think about most of the shops you go to, you know, supermarkets, you know, the, you know, the banks, your only contact with them really when they get to know you is through a pretty high level survey. Um, you know, jump into this 500 quid prize draw that you know you'll never win if you fill this survey out. You know, uh, most big companies don't go beyond these very, very top line surveys, which means the data they have is also top line. You know, they're, wor- they're working in, in a top line fashion in a world which has changed and in a world where customers are really different um in a way that none of us could have anticipated sort of pre you know pre pre the digital revolution and the and the pandemic so i talk a bit about the um the the power of the gemba jason which is a brilliant japanese word which means um the front line you know japanese it's a japanese management philosophy which means the place customers go so in retail it's it's the till it's the doorstep uh, it's the moment you open the, the, the you know the, the package that you've received uh, you know it's it's the changing rooms. It's it's the wherever. It's the places and and great retailers understand the only way to really know what your customers think is to go into the gemba, yeah, and ask them. And the power of the optical industry is you're with them, so you've got all of that contact. Uh, and and then you know you'll find that just by either individual conversations um, in the questions that that, that you know that, that aren't yes no answers, um, or just little focus groups. One, they'll feel really privileged to be asked um, because it's not some dull survey. Uh, and two, they will give you, if, you've, if you listen to what they say, they will give you the answers. And those answers are, are gold dust. So if you're running an old store, an old business, or you've taken over a traditional business and you want to find out how to bring new people into your store, you can't really ask them because they're the people that are not coming into your store. So how does an optician get around that? Um <laughs> This is this is this is turning into deep consultancy on the optical sector in thirty minutes. I am. Um, how do you how do you get around that? I mean, to be honest with you, the weird thing about customers, yeah, it, it is that often when businesses are talking about customers, they don't realise that they're talking about themselves. We are all customers. Customers aren't Martians who just kind of you know landed and are going around going, oh, where are the shops? You know, customers are you and they are me. So, you know, if you are struggling to get customers or you take it on new business, like you say, a vintage business, uh, a heritage business, um, then you just ask some people, you know, some people that you know that, 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 that are going to give you the impartial advice on, on, on what they see uh, and what they don't see. Um, and the, that, those honest bits of you know, nuggets, um, again, if you have the ability to hear them and listen to them, um, then, then those are the things on which you'll 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 base your plan. It's incredible with with retail, actually. I mean, you know, so much of it is just the the blinding obvious. You know, uh, that that a window is just clearly you know inappropriate or irrelevant, or there's there's too much stock so you can't see, or it's just not suitable for the um, for for, for the uh, you know for the um for the, for the customer they're targeting, or, or it's just sort of so cluttered. Uh, you know, the, the, a lot of it's really, really obvious, but it's being open to the obvious, I think, uh, and, and getting it from a few few friends that will just tell you the tell you the truth. 
I think that's it's not always hard to get to, though, is it, the truth? I mean, you talk about clutter and you talk about a really crowded retail environment. That's a huge problem that I come across all the time in optics. When people have, they think they know what the product is that's going to sell, so they buy 100 different variations of the same thing, and it doesn't add anything to their to their retail offer. Well, there's the, unfortunately... There is a belief that's right across all sectors is that more stock means more choice. Uh, you know, if, if in doubt, let's just get a, a bit more stock in <laughs> and just to get a few more show cards out and get a few more messages out there. The truth is customers just get overwhelmed. Uh, and they what they feel in that is a lack of confidence in, in your assortment because you're, you're not backing something to the hilt uh, in, a, in an edited, curated choice because you're the experts um but you don't look like an expert when you've got the you know the, the kitchen sink in there and that's a problem right across retail yeah it looks like it looks like you're throwing enough poop and just seeing what sticks um peter you touched on a, a few of the uh, environmental external issues that we're facing at the moment the energy prices cost of living how do you think consumer behavior is going to change over the next six to 12 months i think i mean i think none of us know i'm a naturally optimistic person you know so I hope that um, uh, you know the, 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 the you know this new government as it as it as it comes in starts to um, to bring some positivity uh, into the country and bring the country together to start with because positive energy goes a hell of a long way and Britain has been very very divided uh, in in the last few years uh, and that hasn't helped the feel good factor. Uh, which we really all need, and of course the you know the, the terrible uh, terrible war in Ukraine. Um, you know the, the backdrop is really really difficult. Um, there's no doubt about it that it's going to be a very very difficult winter. Um, people are going to be ve- much more sensitive to every penny they spend. Uh, none of us really know how bad that's going to be, but all the indications are it's going to be pretty grim for most people. And the only way to 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 make sure you're you're, you stay on the shopping list, if you like, um, is to continue to offer one a sensitivity to value um, because people are challenged, uh, kindness in your service, and an awareness that um, you know that, that 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 life is difficult and life is tough, and a smile, uh, and, and a nod, and recognition um, of a customer. Very very few businesses recognise the power of actually just recognising somebody. Um, who might have been in your shop 25 times um, before, but not that many businesses just recognize that recognition goes up a huge amount of way. Uh, 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 and, uh, you know, let's hope it's okay. Let's hope that this isn't, you know, one of our darkest hours. Um, but the signs aren't good, Jason. The signs are not good at the minute. No, they're not ideal. And um, just to point out as well that Silma has visitors from all over the world. I've lost count of how many countries are going to be visiting. And we have a very specific problem in the UK, but I think it's going to be a pretty widespread problem across the world. And there's another opportunity for community. And I think that's one of the important things about trade shows, isn't it? It does bring people together and give people a chance to share and find solutions together, or at least look for solutions together. I mean, trade shows are brilliant. My my own my own personal view is that whilst we have grown as digital creatures uh, in the past two years, you know, our digital skills have grown phenomenally. We have sort of shrunk uh, and shriveled as social creatures because we've not been allowed out. We've been all cooped up for a long time and therefore to, to, to step back out in the world uh, is scary for some and we do it less and we you know we accept a few less invitations. 
And what these trade event gives you, even if you are a bit scared to go there, is they just give you that wonderful reconnection with, with humanity and skills and craft and innovation in one brilliant sort of bottled up sort of a, a day. Um, so, you know, even if people are, 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 are a little bit nervous, they, they, they never fail, fail to surprise you, I don't think, great trade shows. No, I think it's really important that our industry is opening up again. It's, for me, it's, it was a big surprise to go to a couple of the other trade shows earlier in the year, than, in the first trade shows that we had, uh, and to see the positivity and the way that I felt about just being around other people in our industry that we don't get much chance to share with if there isn't a trade show. But more than that, everybody needs to make a living as well. Um, so let's hope that, that Silmo is a successful show. Um, Peter, I just want to wind this up. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, but before I go, at the top of this podcast, you started talking about reasons to be cheerful. I'm going to pin you down on that one. Can you give us a couple? I don't know. Even in the darkest times, um, my experience has been that innovation and creativity and that good old fabulous British spirit does does come forth if it's nurtured and if it's welcome, which is why I'm hoping that the that the political climate uh, of the country sort of pivots back to sort of some you know positivity uh, uh, and consensus and general you know general um, general sort of ending the years of sort of the, the, the quite sort of bruising years that we've sort of all been through in the past few years. Uh, and get and get sort of brand Britain back on track. That would be fantastic, wouldn't it? Peter, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And I always learn so much whenever we have a chat. Um, if people want to find you and speak to you, how can they get hold of you? Uh, the easiest is probably through my LinkedIn, actually. Um, I'm a bit of a LinkedIn nerd. Um, so I post a few times on that, but my LinkedIn profile is pretty easy to find. Uh, Peter Cross on LinkedIn. So um Probably the easiest way. I've got an Instagram feed as well, but there's only like three three people and my mum that follow that. So that <laughs> and that's just lots of pictures of Spain. So that might not be the best way. Probably LinkedIn. Thank you, though. Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks ever so much for joining us. Uh, if you want to find me, I'm on Instagram. Simply search for Kirk and Kirk. You can also visit kirkandkirk.com to find out more about what we do. And don't forget that during Silmo, we'll bring you an episode every day of the Right Optics podcast, capturing all the colour, voices, trends and talking points of this year's trade fair. For past and future episodes of the Right Optics, follow or subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. Peter, thanks ever so much. Look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks for having me, Jason. See you soon. The Right Optics podcast is brought to you by Silmo, the leading trade show for eyewear and optics. Come and join us from September the 23rd until September the 26th at Parc des Expositions at Paris Villepinte. For more information, go to www.silmoparis.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Silmo Paris.